Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. A bill that would have prov- prohibited logging in portions of Indiana's forests is dead after failing to get a vote in committee. But the hundreds of Hoosiers who gathered at the Statehouse Monday to support the measure say their fight isn't over. Groups like the Indiana Forest Alliance have advocated for years for a law requiring some of the state forests be preserved from logging. Senate Bill 420 would have set aside 10% of state forests where harvesting timber isn't allowed. That's less than previous proposals. Last year, the legislature considered a bill that would have set aside 23% of state forests and would have created what the Forest Alliance calls state wild areas. Those areas would be set aside for recreation and would not be logged. But that measure didn't even get a hearing. Logging in the state forests has increased 400% in the past decade. The Indiana Forest Alliance blames former Governor Mitch Daniels for slashing the Division of Forestry's budget and making the agency responsible for generating more of its operating costs through logging. The Bloomington Environmental Commission has announced its sixth annual Eco Heroes Contest. This annual environmental-themed art contest seeks to provoke natural curiosity within local students as artists, writers, and craftspeople. The theme this year is Embracing Our Aging Planet. Participants are welcome to submit a wide variety of media and are permitted to collaborate as pairs, groups, and even as a class. Senior environmental planner at the City of Bloomington, Linda Thompson, spoke to WFHB about the contest. This is just a fun competition, and it's been for uh, school-age kids in the past, but this year it's opened up to adults. And it's just a fun competition of art material, and it can be any kind of art. It can be uh, music, it can be metal art, it can be fabric art, uh, it can be painting, it can be songs or poems or anything that a person wants to do. And the Environmental Commission will, will judge it, and uh, there's some uh, prizes, and there's an award ceremony whereby the mayor will distribute the, the prizes. And it's just to bring awareness to the community about their local environmental issues. Last year, the event represented the work of 190 students from Bloomington. Entries this year should be submitted by March 31st at the City Planning and Transportation Department. All submissions will be displayed at City Hall, and awards will be given in a variety of categories. Mayor John Hamilton will host the awards ceremony April 22nd in City Hall. Monroe County Plan Commission members heard from local residents last week while considering a rezoning request for property once known as the Shortstop Gas Station. 
The rezoning request is the first step in the potential redevelopment of the three and a half acre site at the southeast corner of South Rogers Street and Country Club Drive. A developer is asking the site be rezoned in anticipation of building a new convenience store and gas station on the property. The site has been vacant for 20 years. Local resident Alexis Pruitt expressed concern that the site has not been cleaned up since it last held underground gasoline storage tanks. I'm just curious, you know, what kind of testing they're doing to truly document, because with that being on a plain, which would be a watershed or a water effect down to Clear Creek, what kind of damage has been done and what remediation still needs to happen to protect that area. Plan Commission member Sue Johnson said the developer claims to have documentation of remediation from the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Wilson, the planning director, said he conducted a search but did not find the site in the state's database for leaky underground storage sites. He said any new storage tanks will have to meet strict guidelines. Any gas tanks that are installed now have to comply with both state and federal regulations in regard to underground storage tanks. I know the monitoring requirements and the, and the uh, construction requirements are much greater than they were when the original tanks went in. Wilson said that a site plan will have to be approved before a developer could build a new gas station there. That site plan will be subject to scrutiny by county officials, including drainage and highway engineers. The majority of the plan commission members present, present agreed to give the rezoning request a favorable recommendation to the county commissioners. The sole no vote came from Commission Member Scott Wells. U.S. Congressional Representative Rob Bishop, a Utah Republican, has won the Center for Biological Diversity's Rubber Dodo Award. Bishop is chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources and, according to the Center, has, quote, fanatically pursued an extremist agenda, agenda to give away America's public lands and kill off its endangered species, unquote. The award is given annually to the person or group who has most aggressively sought to destroy America's natural heritage or drive endangered species to extinction. Bishop has vowed to let fossil fuel companies extract oil and gas from public lands and to turn over those lands to other polluters and developers. He also advocates repealing the Endangered Species Act and rescinding the Bears Ears National Monument, which President Obama designated. Bishop won the award as a result of an online contest which tens of thousands of people chose between him, the deputy administrator of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services, and two former corporate CEOs. Two new studies by international teams, including Egyptian scientists, have demonstrated a link between autism and mercury. In an article published in the journal Met Metabolic Brain Disease, a team of nine scientists from leading Egyptian universities and medical schools concluded that mercury causes autism. To be clear, the study did not examine whether there is a link between autism and the vaccine preservative thimerosal. In many USA studies, thimerosal has been shown to not contribute to autism. But at least six American studies have linked autism presence or severity to mercury exposure. They measured the excretion of organic compounds called porphyrins, which serve as biomarkers for mercury toxicity. The researchers also measured blood levels of mercury and lead. The researchers found a strong relationship between mercury toxicity and the presence of autism. 
there is a direct correlation between levels of mercury toxicity and the severe severity of autism symptoms. The scientists in the Egyptian study examined 100 children, 40 with autism spectrum disorder, 40 healthy individuals, and 20 healthy siblings of autistic children. The results showed that the children with autism spectrum disorder had significantly higher mercury levels than healthy children and healthy siblings. Children with the highest mercury levels had the most severe autism symptoms. At least six American studies have linked autism presence or severity to mercury exposure as determined by measuring urinary porphyrins. For the seventh time, a robot investigating radiation levels at the Fukushima, Japan, nuclear power plant broke down during the investigation. The power plant melted down after a 2011 earthquake and tsunami. Whether the cause was radiation or debris isn't known. On February 2nd, the Tokyo Electric Power Company announced the discovery of a hole measuring over four feet in diameter in the metal grating at the bottom of the containment vessel in one of the plant's reactors. In that area of the reactor, the radiation level was 530 sieverts per hour. Only 73 sieverts per hour were found right after the catastrophe. Note that NASA's maximum amount of radiation exposure allowed for astronauts over their entire lifetime is one sievert. Within a month, exposure to five sieverts would kill half the people exposed. Exposure to ten sieverts would be lethal over a period of weeks for almost everyone exposed. President Donald Trump's administration has taken aim at regulatory bodies, including the Environmental Protection Agency. For more on that... We go to this report from EcoReport correspondent Norm Holy. President Trump recently declared the Environmental Protection Agency a disgrace. Recently, White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon said that President Trump's cabinet picks are aimed at, quote, deconstruction of the administrative state, unquote. The actions do not stop there. A bill, H.R. 861, has been introduced into the House by four Koch-funded Republicans that would eliminate the EPA. What might we expect from the elimination of the EPA? We can arrive at some view of the situation by considering the environment prior to the establishment of the EPA by President Nixon. I'll give a few illustrations of events prior to the EPA. New York City had smog. The smog in New York is shorthand for the choking three-day air pollution event that smothered the city over Thanksgiving 1966. That weekend, the city experienced a heat inversion, a stationary layer of warm air that prevented the normal upward circulation. As a result, low-lying pollution simply hung over the city. Air pollution hung over many major American cities and some not so major. In Denora, Pennsylvania, a former mill town in the state's steel country, 20 people died during a 1948 air pollution event that was one of the worst in U.S. history. Today, the town maintains a smog museum dedicated to reminding people of the tragedy that eventually gave rise to the Clean Air Act. For Indiana, without the EPA, we should expect much worse air quality. For example, coal utilities might shutter their scrubbers. The Rockport plant currently burns low-sulfur coal from Wyoming. Would they switch to high-sulfur coal of Indiana? Would that result in the air above the Rockport plant beginning to look like the air over Gary, Indiana? 
water quality suffered before the EPA. The Cuyahoga River fire refers to an incident that took place in Cleveland on June 22, 1969, when sparks from a train landed on oil-soaked debris floating on the river's surface, igniting it. Flames reached five stories in height as the river burned for about 30 minutes. While it was inarguably a terrifying incident, the Cuyahoga fire had occurred many times on that river between the late 19th and mid-20th century. In fact, the Time magazine photo of the fire that captured so much public attention in 1969 was actually a photo of a previous fire in 1952. And many other American rivers were sufficiently polluted to go up in flames around the same period. Would lead contamination of the water supply become common without the EPA? The nation could have many situations like Flint, Michigan, and perhaps the public would never become aware of the situations since there wouldn't be a watchdog agency. Bloomington would be much poorer off today, in fact, had the EPA not pursued companies over PCB dumps. Without the EPA, could a company sell DDT again, repeating the experiences that caused Rachel Carson to write Silent Spring? Santa Barbara had an oil spill on January 28, 1969, a blowout in an offshore well that released thousands of barrels of oil into the ocean. We've recently seen the rupture of a pipeline into the Kalamazoo River in Marshall, Michigan. Fracking spills are commonplace. Without the EPA, who is capable of suing the companies for damages? That was EcoReport correspondent Norm Holy. And that's the news for this week. For EcoReport, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Don Guerra. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or or if you have any future story ideas. Please send emails to Earth at wfhb.org. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's Eco Feature correspondent Bob Kissel spoke with a professor at Indiana University on the subject of biodiversity. In the first of a two part feature, WFHB interviewed Indiana University professor Roger Hangarter about biodiversity. Would you define biodiversity? I see biodiversity as the variation and variability in life forms and within species also. Tremendous biodiversity, whether you see it or not. When did the term biodiversity become a routine part of scientific discussion? Good question, but I think it actually became part of it when I was in college in the early 70s, maybe a little before that, when I first started hearing about it, and then it just seems to have been part of conversation. In terms of popular discussion of biodiversity beyond academics or scientific circles? Yeah, that probably took 
a number of years before it really became something you would see in the newspapers and magazines, so probably in the 80s. And how, how does biodiversity occur, starting with the emergence of life on the Earth some three and a half billion years ago? A lot of accidents. <laughs> so a lot of things are occurring because the chemistry allows the life to start. Then life's, all life forms have to reproduce and get their nutrition and energy from the environment. And so we see organisms just evolving to be able to eke out a living in all these different locations with different climates, different nutrition sources, and also different organisms with them that they're all interacting with and feeding off of and feeding themselves too. So it's a very, it's a noisy system, but it gets into a rhythm. Was there an era when our planet was more biodiverse? I don't know that for sure, and I doubt anybody really knows that because a lot of that would be based on fossil evidence and many mm -hmm. things can't be fossilized. The earliest life forms were microbes and single cells, and a lot of that evidence for their existence is from traces of things. You don't have fossils of microorganisms mm -hmm. very much. Microorganisms are incredibly diverse, so I wouldn't be surprised if early on we had, in terms of numbers of species, it's possible there were even more back in the early days, but a lot of people, I think, believe that the most biodiversity has been in the last several million years. Why the past several million years? You know, this is what I was saying. It's hard to know because the fossil record is not complete. We have a lot more data from the last few million mm -hmm. years, so it's quite possible. It's like looking for your keys under the lamppost, you know. <laughs> it's just easier to find the, the evidence. What's the estimate of the total number of flora and fauna at present? faculty member in our department here at IU has published a paper recently that has estimated it to be about one trillion species. And is there any more flora versus fauna? I think there's more fauna than flora in terms of numbers of different species. You're a plant biologist yeah. and, and you've been talking a lot about biodiversity to various groups. How did you move to, in that direction? Well, I've always been interested in all sorts of biology. That's why I became a biologist. You know, as a kid, we were out in the woods all the time. My parents would take us to the woods and say, have a nice day, and we'd come home at dinner time. Something that no one does anymore, except for grown-ups. <laughs> you know, we were out all the time. We were collecting organisms. We were looking at them. We were reading about them. My brother and my sister and I all had a strong fascination with these things. I had an amazing grandmother who was an avid gardener and she taught us a lot about plants and how they work and while she was making us weed and mower right, <laughs> right, lawn and right. that sort of thing. And we just learned a lot from that. So from my grandmother's motivations, we developed just a routine thing. We always collected things, we cataloged things, read about them. When I started you know, when it was time to go to college, I actually was going to be a veterinarian. That was my plan until I started taking some classes and learned that I was much more interested in how things work um, at the fundamental level. And just through circumstances, I ended up becoming a plant physiologist. Mm -hmm. um, opportunities presented themselves that were interesting, and I went in that direction. I've never stopped being interested in what's outside, so my lab research is lab research. My, for 30-something years, I've been working in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. 
but when I'm not working in the laboratory, I'm often outside exploring. And the advent of digital cameras gave me an opportunity to just start cataloging. And I, mean, I love doing photography, so it's a fun activity. And instead of just looking at the bird, I try to take pictures of it, or looking at the butterfly, I try to take That allowed me now to have a huge database of photographs of biodiversity, and almost all of it's from here. So I kind of stick around here. I don't travel very far for doing this. And my reason for that is, I don't know how many years now, David Attenborough and public television has taught us that biodiversity is something you go find in Madagascar and Borneo and Africa, and that's where all the nature is. And no one really thinks about nature in their own space. I think that's a real danger, not being aware of the biodiversity we have in our own locality because it's very easy to ignore it, which makes it very easy to destroy. There have been a number of mass extinction events over the multiple millennia. How does that affect the course of biodiversity? Changes it tremendously. So, you know, you, you might have some, you know, like an ecosystem that's been sort of stable for a while and it gets wrecked and now you're left with a handful of species and they start to diversify and fill in the niches that were occupied by others, but they aren't the same as the others. And so it actually creates new diversity, maybe not more of it, but it's a new form of diversity. Uh, but the ecosystems always tend to come back to ones where you have a sustainability component to it until the extinction event happens. And then, of course, it's not sustainable, mm -hmm. but biology is incredibly resilient. And you, know, you see that all the time. You see an abandoned building, and within a few years, there's things growing out of it. Um, it doesn't take long. Why does biodiversity vary across the planet? Well, there's a lot of factors, environment, food availability, minerals available for the food to grow off of. The most diverse places are the ones where you just have lots of niches, mountainous landscapes where you go and you have elevation changes, which give you climate changes along the way. Water availability is changing along the way. So a place like Costa Rica would be incredibly diverse. It's got mountain range, pretty high mountains, it's got a dry side and a wet side. I mean, it's just every place you go, you just see different things and you don't have to go far. So it's really about the variability in the geology and climate of the planet. You've mentioned uh, David Attenborough in terms of some of the areas that he's focused his viewers on. W what are some of those really almost super bi biodiverse areas? Well, one of the most biodiverse areas is one I mentioned, Costa Rica. It's a very small country. It's about the size of Indiana. And it's got these mountains and rainforests and dry areas. It's got tremendous biodiversity in terms of square foot of tropical places, often where there's abundant moisture so that the plants can really thrive. Because all of biodiversity really depends pretty much on the organisms that can capture sunlight to do mm -hmm. photosynthesis. There are a few places in the bottom of the ocean where they get their energy from geothermal sources, mm -hmm. but the majority of life on the planet is driven by photosynthesis. And so if you have conditions that can provide good photosynthetic growth, there's going to be a lot of biodiversity because there's plenty of food available for the organisms that live off of the plants. In next week's part two feature on biodiversity, Dr. Hengarter talks about his work in cataloging our local flora and fauna species. For WFHP's Eco Report, this has been Bob Kissel. You're listening to Eco Report on WFHP, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana. 
ECO Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And here's our weekly events calendar. The IU Cinema will be showing This Changes Everything, film followed by a panel discussion on Friday, March 3rd, from 6.30 to 8, 9 p.m. The film is an epic attempt to reimagine the vast challenge of climate change. Wiley House will have their annual spring seed sale on Saturday, March 4th at 307 East 2nd Street in Bloomington. Over 70 varieties of heirloom flowers, herbs, and vegetable seeds will be available for purchase. Learn about the wonderful world of woodpeckers of Indiana at Brown County State Park on Saturday, March 4th from 2 to 3 p.m. Meet naturalist Don Glass in the Nature Center for an in-depth look at Indiana's woodpeckers. The Bloomington Neighborhood Tree Rangers training will take place on Tuesday, March 7th and Wednesday, March 8th from 6.30 to 9 p.m. at the Twin Lakes Recreation Center located at 1700 West Bloomfield Road in Bloomington. The training will involve 25 individuals from from different neighborhoods to help monitor neighborhood trees. To register, email Lee Huss at Huss. L at Bloomington Huss L at Bloomington dot Indiana IN dot gov by March fourth. Be an insect investigator and hunt for insects on a short hike at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve with instructor Autumn Brunel on Saturday, March eleventh from two to three PM. Register at Bloomington dot IN dot GOV forward slash parks by March sixth. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812-336-2785 or online at solarsystemsofindiana.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, Kathy Norton, and Carol Van Cleve. Our events calendar was compiled by Juliana Daly. Our feature was produced by Bob Kissel. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm David Lyman. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct, a- direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically-inspired news source. 
for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 